0: Kate is the author of two previous works, In My Skin, which came out in 2005 and was a bestseller, being published in at least 10 different countries. It was followed up by The Romantic, Italian Nights and Days. Some of you might remember that Kate and I had a brief conversation about The Romantic in 2015 for Outspoken. Kate has written that the publication of In My Skin granted her the possibility of a new life as a full-time writer after a somewhat interesting and curious earlier career. Since then, she's written regularly for the Saturday Age and now for the Saturday Paper, as well as contributing literary reviews for many mainstream newspapers and magazines. In 2011, she took on what she described as the perilous career of a teacher of creative writing at RMIT. <laughs> but the reason she is here tonight is to discuss her most recent work, which took her four years to write The Winter Road. It is now one four major literary awards in Australia including a Walkley and the Non-Fiction Prize in the 2022 New South Wales Premier's Literary Awards. Please welcome Kate Holden to Mullaney.
1: Thank you. Thank you. It's so nice to be back here. I, I remember my last visit to Mullaney and how, um, how impressed we were with the whole place. It's lovely to be back. Thank you, Stephen.
0: Look, I'd like to start with a little bit of you, if if we may. Mm. As mentioned, the last time you were here in Millennium was when we were talking about the romantic, in which you described going to Italy in search of four things, Rome, romantics, romance, and lastly, almost as an afterthought, yourself. Mm. It's a piece of what has now become called auto-fiction, that is, I think, I'm still fuzzy on the definition, Mm. a description of something that really happened but told as if it was fiction. I know this is a long question, especially for the first one, but the point of it is not to draw you back to the romantic or in my skin, but to drag you forward into this book, The Winter Road. All the life you describe in these two earlier memoirs is urban, cosmopolitan, sophisticated, Melbourne, Rome, Naples. And yet here we are, 10 or 11 years later, and you've produced a work, an important work, about Australian landscape, about a bit of fairly remote northwestern New South Wales near Moree. What happened?
1: <laughs> yeah, no one was more surprised than me, I can I can assure you. Um, yes, look, I, I established, I guess, a, a bit of ground with my first two books as this young w- <laughs> female writer writing about sexuality and, and feelings and young womanhood and conflict and, and so on. Um, and um, just apropos of what you and Katie were t- talking about, it reminded me of when The Romantic came out, which I think is quite a... Um, uh, I tried to be very astute about relationships between men and women and it was all very much kind of in, you know, psychological and so on. And I went on, I think, John Fane or, I can't remember, one of those um, big male um, radio interviewers and he said, oh, it's basically about bonking, isn't it? (laughs) And he said, oh, you just bonked your way around Italy and um, that kind of put me in my place, uh, I guess. But, um, yeah, I, I, I guess I'd, I had finished being interested in those subjects and uh, I was m- kind of working on developing a career in literary journalism and arts journalism and just, you know, kind of jobbing writing that's been coming along. I had a child, um, which um, gave me not so much time for kind of deep thought and I wasn't sure of my next project. Uh, so I was kind of languishing, I guess, and then um, I started working for The Saturday Paper, which has a wonderful editor now back in the helm called Eric Jensen, who's um, you know, a really original and perceptive writer himself. And he came to me and said, listen, we've just run a story about this murder, which had happened a couple of years earlier. So this the, the death that occurs in The Winter Road took place in 2014, and I think this was 2018. And... Um, and he said, but we think there's a story in it, but we'd, l- we'd like you to try and write it. And um, this really did take me by surprise, because it wasn't the kind of thing I've ever done before. And I have to confess straight away that I wasn't a history student of Australian history. So I went to strange schools where we did no kind of formal curriculum, so I knew nothing about Australian history much. Um, nothing about the countryside, I was living in um, St Kilda in Melbourne. Um, I'm an arts graduate, I was going to be an archaeologist, so what what business would I have writing about this? But he said, I think you're good with people. And uh, I've got got a, a good kind of naive style, I guess, in the interviewing, which I've been doing a bit for him. And he said, I think you can do something maybe a bit like Chloe Hooper's Wonderful The Tall Man, which was a book of um, very wonderful, vivid narrative non-fiction, where Chloe went up to Palm Island in the wake of um, a, an Indigenous death in cus- custody, and did a great of kind of portrait of the crowd and the place and the scenes and the, and the characters. Um, so I thought, okay. Uh, but what I very instantly established was that uh, that was never going to happen for this book because um, everyone involved in the book was either dead or not speaking anymore. There was no scene, there was no crowd, there was no landscape to kind of, you know, go walk into and just take lots of notes and write up in a kind of, you know, vivid way.
0: Had the, so, had the trial... So the
1: trial had been the murder had occurred, Glenn okay, Turner it, was, it was dead, an and I'll explain who these people are in a second, but, um, yeah, the trial had been the murderer had since died in jail... It was over, basically, um, except for the land clearing, which continued, uh, which is part of the um, unexpectedly dramatic story of the book. So uh, just to, to, to kind of wind up, um, I, I found myself committed to writing a book with <laughs> very few resources and a very small idea of how I was going to actually pull it off. So I set to work um, establishing what I could out of it, and I found myself writing a book which came you know, to me uh, to be really a fable about Australia and the big country, especially the, the, the rural kind of Australia, which I had never really had any experience of and had no relationship to. And all I could do as I approached this with greater and greater terror was assure myself that the naivety that I'd brought to the interviews, which had always um, resulted in actually quite an interesting conversation. Was going to be the quality I could bring to this book, being the outsider, being the someone who doesn't know anything who was going to take the reader with me into this, the learning of this story?
0: Yeah. Yeah. There, there, there's, I mean there are so many strands in the book, but um, it, it starts, and of course its kind of central point is the murder of Glenn Turner by, by Ian Turnbull. Yeah. And I, I have to say that the, the similarity of the two surnames throughout yes. the book causes yeah. enormous problems all the time. Well, this is
1: real life, isn't it? It's, it's, a, <laughs> it's not like in the movies.
0: Yes, you could change one of their names to, 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 to something. Anyway, but it's, it's also an investigation of our relationship with the land itself. That's, that's yeah. what you've really done here. One of the fundamental questions, it seems to me, that you want to talk about here is how we as a society have determined ownership of land. Uh, You start, really, with John Locke.
1: Yes. My editor, Eric, who was not the editor of the book, but the editor who'd commissioned it, when I wrote to him, I said, oh, I'm just deep in John Locke, he's like, why? what are you doing? And I said, and tra- tractor technology, the history of the tractor, it's unbelievable. He's like, what are you doing? Oh, my God. But
0: John Locke is really central because every, everything follows from John Locke, doesn't it? It, it
1: does, and, and no doubt even further back. You know, I, uh, What I ha- found as I was writing this story was that you could go back and back and back. Um, but the story is basically about the murder of Glenn Turner, who was environmental officer in New South Wales, who was investigating Ian Turnbull and his family, who were a farming, well, land developer family in um, a hamlet outside of Moree, near the border, and they had been continually clearing land that they had bought recently with an eye to broadacre cropping um, and uh, in the knowledge that they would probably never get permission from the authorities to clear these blocks because they were covered in endangered species. Um, uh, Brigalow, Bala, you know, vegetation species, small mammal species, and koalas. Um, nevertheless, the Turnbulls bought the blocks, started clearing them. Glenn Turner was assigned to investigate this. He began doing the investigations which led to their prosecutions, several prosecutions over the years. Mm-hmm. And Ian Turnbull, who was an 80 year old farmer, the patriarch, um, took real exception to this, what he saw as interference. And when Glenn a couple of years later was in the neighbourhood, Ian Turnbull murdered him in cold blood, an unarmed government officer. So this was the story that's at the heart of the, the, the kind of the drama. But looking at that, my first question was why? Why were these two men on a winter road? Why were they on this road at twilight in the middle of nowhere? Why was there a farmer with the mentality that if something stands in your way, you pick up a gun and you shoot it down? Why was there such a thing as an environmental officer? You know, who? What is this kind of figure, and why have we got one? And to answer the questions that, those questions, I, I really had to go back and start exploring the history of both of those mentalities, and of course that led me deeper and deeper towards the origins of the Australian settlement, and the mentalities that had been brought 200 so years earlier, which I felt was still being enacted in this tragedy, and to answer the the question of where did those mentalities arrive from, they came on the boat, and they were brought by people who had been um, reading philosophy, shaped by policy, coming out of the cultural and physical landscape of Britain and Europe. And those people were, of course, influenced by people like John Locke, who, you see, I'm getting there, um, had written in the 1690s about what happens when Uh, You take God-given land and your God-given body and you use it together to create something else. And John Locke had said, God gave you the land, God gave you the body. Um, But when you work, when you bend down and you pick up an acorn, he said, that acorn becomes yours and the country that it is on becomes yours. And this was, I think, a fundamental attitude about how humans and especially in those days in relation to the divine kind of bestowal of, of land and, and nature, related to the idea of possession. And his ideas went on to be extremely powerful, especially in the United States, when it was um, being constituted and is still very fundamental to their idea about private property and what it means to you and what you're allowed to do, how excluding it is to have private property. Um, and these attitudes came in a form to Australia, so that when Australian um, uh, invaders came to this, uh, to this continent, they said, uh, people here are not using it. It's terra nullius. It's not being worked in the way that they understood it should have been worked. And so they said, but we will work it. We will pluck the acorn, and that makes it ours. Yeah. And from that, everything else has followed, I think. Uh,
0: and I mean, we, I hope you'll indulge me for a moment, because the, the book begins with a quote, and I've, I've just written it down here because it's such a, such a powerful quote. It comes from Jean-Jacques Rousseau. And he says, The first man who, having enclosed a piece of ground, bethought himself of saying, this is mine, and found people simple enough to believe him, was the real founder of civil society. From how many crimes, wars, murders, from how many horrors and misfortunes might not anyone have saved mankind by pulling up the stakes or filling up the ditch and crying to his fellows, beware of listening to this imposter. You're undone if you once forget that the fruits of the earth belong to us all and the earth itself to nobody.
1: Mm. Mm. Well, Rousseau had a different attitude and I guess what that reminded me of was Cain and Abel, you know, who fall to blows, over, over possessions, yeah. and and this idea that um, land is a contested space. Now, it is not necessarily, as Rousseau says, it's not necessarily like that, but we have made it so. And certainly um, in Europe, at the time of, of settlement and an invasion of Australia, it was extremely contested because there'd been um, a, a process under which the commons had been appropriated, so the clearances, which I know you're, you've been writing about, um, shoved people off the land and it was seized by the, the nobility and the same thing had happened in England. That was in Scotland In England that had the Enclosure Act, yeah. which meant that the land that had previously belonged and been available to many was now the property of a few and, in fact, if you trespassed, you were penalised. So it's yeah. revealed that many people ended up in, transported to Australia for having taken a little bit of what used to be theirs. Yes. And that this, you know, the tragedy of the Commons um, is... It's kind of enacted then with all in this kind of compensatory way when people come to Australia because the people who migrated to Australia in the early 19th century um, were often people who had been excluded from property in Britain. And to not have property in Britain meant that you had no rights whatsoever. You had no vote, you had no enfranchisement, you had no representation, you had nothing but you could come here and you could just snatch it, Um, notwithstanding the people who obviously were already here. But to their mind, I think it was was there to be grabbed and what you could do for yourself and your family. What an amazing paradise to come to. And it was there for the taking. But, of course, if everyone else wanted to take it, more and more people came. And so very soon it became this you know, this free-for-all and and, um, the selection acts which were were brought in in the 19th century were a way of kind of trying to divvy it up so the things were equal. But, of course, they they had this kind of perverse effect of enfranchising only a few. So the people who had been there first, who were strongest, the most powerful, the most kind of unscrupulous, they would buy up all the good bits, the bits the closest to water. They'd got rid of the First Nations people already. They could get all the fantastic plump land, make it work. And, in fact, people who got the, the remnants were reduced to um, slaving on the properties of the rich ones while their own properties were left to rack and ruin. And, of course, this is against the background of massive environmental catastrophe being brought Mm -hmm. also with that same mentality. So it was a a tough time. And I think out of that came a couple of things, which was this idea of um, the nobility of the toil, like that plucking of the acorn... Well, that plucking is ever more dramatic and insignificant the more you have to work for that acorn. You know, if toil and labour in the, in the in your body is what you have to do to enfranchise yourself on property,
0: the harder, the harder, the harder you more work, you work, the, the more the more right you have to own it.
1: Yes, the, how hard you have to sweat, and the more you sweat, the more the more yeah. placed you are. And of course, they knew that this wasn't their place. Mm. And I think, of course, there was this horrific background of genocidal violence, yeah. which could also not be acknowledged and had to be displaced into a war on nature. So yeah. this, this kind of hacking and toiling and slicing and whacking and lugging and sweating and bleeding over the land was this performance of appropriation that you could have, which meant that we've, out of that we've had this incredibly kind of robust myth of the battler which we're, we're all familiar with and we know how much is invested in that.
0: And, and out of that comes, you introduce this into the book, this word, presentiment or resent, I'm not even terribly sure how you pronounce it, because it's, yeah. it's not a word that we, even kind of like most people in Australia, if you said resentment, they wouldn't really know what you meant. Mm. And it's almost like we don't know what it means because we don't like, what it actually means. Yeah.
1: There's a lot not to be talked about <laughs> in this. Um, also, I came across the idea of this, um, this concept of ressentiment, which is kind of, I think we'll all be familiar with this idea, where you, you're you not secure in yourself. There's something uneasy in you. You know you've done something wrong or you know, you're not feeling strong and robust and really confident. Perhaps you're feeling a little guilty, you're a little bit concerned about people finding things out about you, maybe a bit of imposter syndrome. And to deflect the anxiety and unease and the kind of unhabitability of this situation, you turn it outwards and you blame someone else. And you you blame them, it's them. They've made you weak, they've cast you down. So, one of the things that people settle. violence entailed was blaming the First Nations people for the violence. It was their fault. They were spearing the cattle. They were stealing our stuff. They were threatening our women um, and so on. And then there's also this, well, we have to poison, hack, you know, slave over, scrump down, run our cattle over this land because it's constantly fighting us. It's its fault. The only thing to do with this, and this is against the background of penal violence as well, so people were constantly thinking about how to rehabilitate criminals, They were thinking the land is like a criminal. It's got to be reformed was the term that they would use. And they would apply discipline to the land. So they would basically literally flog it like they would a convict. And they were out there smashing and whacking. And this was all this kind of enacting of, I guess, this displaced sense that something about them was wrong. And in the book, I really did try to, to not just go, oh, my God, these terrible people but try and understand where they were coming from. And I thought a lot of the people who came to Australia in the the migration of the, you know, say, 1840s and 50s, and the violence was at its worst in the, really, 1840s, um, in, in New South Wales, a lot of them weren't murderers by nature. They were people from the cities, maybe from, you know, small towns. A lot of them had never been on the land. They came out with all these hopes of, you know, finally getting their place, making something for their families. But they found themselves in this kind of nightmare where they were wiping human blood from their hands. You know, what does that do to a person who was brought up in Birmingham to come here into this landscape? And all the repression that was um, necessary in order to persevere. I mean, you know, come so far, steeped in blood, they were, they were here now, what were they going to do? They couldn't just leave. So I think there was this kind of compensation that grew kind of habitual and um, I think that was present even in Ian Turnbull when he decided that it wasn't his fault and his family's fault for illegally clearing these blocks of endangered species and allegedly shooting koalas. It was Glen Turner's fault for finding out and I, I just, all I could see in this was that that mentality of 1848 was still at work in 2014 and there was another quote I found, I had a great time finding quotes for the kind of the, the epigraphs at the start of chapters and one of them is shoot the pests and man- manure the ground with them and that was the attitude that people had to the native wildlife but I think it really applied to Glenn Turner as well.
0: Uh, so it's, it's a, a bit of a dark it's story. Dark. Really. It's a dark story. Yeah, but it is it's dark. A, let, let, let's move just for a moment into um, one of the things you say about Ian Turnbull's property, because he had quite a large amount of property. It's about 10,000 hectares or something like that. Based over various different various different properties. Is it lo- is it more than that, or well,
1: he'd, he'd had about eleven properties in his family over time, and they would they would buy them, uh, you know, develop them um, and sell them on. So this is in the Golden Triangle near the border, which yeah. is the, the so richest th- agricultural land in the country. So it was very worthwhile so for that, them.
0: So that was my question. You know, why is it the richest agriculture agricultural oh. land in the country?
1: Yeah, well, geologically speaking, it's basalt plains, and it's got this beautiful quality to the soil structure um, it's irrigated in a specific way which is good for plants but it's also been protected under the Brigalow belt which you know used to come from this end of town all the way down th- across the border and down into New South Wales and the Brigalow is, um, is an ancient vegetation so it's really old old forest and it still has the characteristics of old forest from a- an ecology which is long since gone. And it's um, it's a wonderful plant, and it's 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 kind of an ecological community plant. So other things are encouraged. It grows, it spreads, and other things grow up underneath it. So what happened when they started clearing it was that it was prickly pear grew up underneath it, which was a you know a problem. But it also has this property where it fixes nitrogen in the soil. So like leguminous plants, so people plant clover and and so on to fix nitrogen into the soil if they don't want to use chemicals. Chemical fertilizers. Well, Bricolo does that really well. And so the land was beautiful under this stuff. It was healthy and, you know, intact. And I read Eric Rolls's magnificent book, A Million Wild Acres, which is set in the Pilliga, which is just a little bit south of the area that I was describing. And he talks about the land, you know, was in this gorgeous condition. You know, no um, hoofed um, foot or shoed foot had trod on it for a millennia. And it was this, you know, it was, it was perfect, but it was ruined in six years after settlement. And what happened in the agricultural history, which I started de- delving into, me, an arts graduate from Melbourne University, I wasn't <laughs> expecting to be interested in any of this, but it was fascinating, was that there was this sequence of um, agricultural experiments, well, especially grazing, first of all, actually, and then eventually agriculture, under the guise of science and advice. And so the farmers were not maniacs. They were often doing what they were told to do. But what they did is they absolutely ruined that beautiful country. Um, They ran hoofed animals over it. They grazed it out. The hoofed animals ruined the waterways. They um, ran all the Indigenous traditional owners off the land so they had no concourse to their wisdom. And they... um, not not everywhere, but they, they certainly jeopardise the relationship with people who could have given them a lot of good advice about what not to do. And, um, and, and, and one, of, they... one of
0: the things about what not to do is not to cut Brigolo down because it, cut it, it. it doesn't it doesn't respond well. It doesn't like
1: it. No, it suckers, and so it comes up and it makes these unbelievable kind of muscled fortresses of vegetation, perfect as a stage if you want to do a lot of spectacular bloody sweaty whacking. So for people who had a lot psychologically invested in this kind of war with nature, what they did was perfect. Um, and, you know, this became so ingrained in, the, in culture that I think a lot of people here would even remember in the old days, you'd go out and bash the bush on the weekends. You know, family, country families, this is what you do with the kids. You'd go out and you'd poison the prickly pear and you'd you know, shoot some of the rabbits or whatever it is, and you would, um, you'd go and bash some Bricolo you know, in that part of the country and um, this is just what you did, because it had to be kept back. And what happened is, if you if you do clear Brigolo, it does, it comes back feral, and it kind of goes a bit berserk, and then you end up with a real problem, and then you have to fight it harder, and you get a lot of weeds, and you get prickly pear, and you get all this kind of madcap runaway kind of destruction. If you'd just left it in peace, <laughs> none of this would have happened. It's also got that... I've, I, I had to pull myself back from getting really carried away with the kind of the bush gothic, so that kind of the 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 lost in the bush trope, you know children lost in the bush and the kind of the spectral I, uncanny of the bush. I, I had chapters and chapters about this and I had to take almost all of it out. but because Brigolo grew up harder and thicker and I thought how scary that would have been to people who were used to lovely kind of glades, and their kind of idea of a beautiful parkland, because this meant you couldn't see what was coming. People lost whole herds of cattle in this scrub, you know. You couldn't see anything. You couldn't move through it. Who knew what was coming at you? And if you were in a a violence, antagonistic relationship with another community, who knew who was going to be creeping around and maybe aiming a spear at you? And so that kind of paranoia about the bush came into play as well, and I think people really had that... Yeah, a fearful attitude to the environment around them and, you know, they'd close themselves into their little communities Mm -hmm. and even those communities, I think, were difficult because they were, they were, yeah, contested, other people were after what you had. So I can only imagine that it was a tense time through the 19th and early 20th century and it was really only with the, um, the land clearing of the, of the 40s, 50s and 60s when people found ball and chain clearing and they did, um, what do you call it, where they spray the stuff, like the kind of napalmy stuff.
0: 245D yeah, is what I yeah, think they were Yeah, using, yeah, yeah.
1: And, um, and you could suddenly smash huge amounts of brigalow scrub down um, that people really felt that they could move into that landscape in a secure way. And what they wanted to do immediately was start clearing it <laughs> as far as they could. And that's what they're doing to this day.
0: And, and it's interesting in the book here, because listening to you talk here at the moment, um, I, I think the audience would kind of tend to think that you're uh, you know, totally critical of what, of what occurred. But in the book, you do attempt uh, an impartiality, because Australian agriculture in the early 21st century, in a way, there is a certain amount of success to it. We are an exporter of of enormous quantities of produce there is yeah. there is a there is a success story there as well as the flip side of it
1: yes yeah, certainly and look i felt very conscious that as a as a city girl and as someone who had no background on on country um it was not uh, who was I really to wade in and and talk about what was people should or shouldn't have done. Um, I did I did try and uh, contact people who farmers and so on um, and talk to them about what it was like. Uh, but still I felt I don't know if I'm in any authority to to really critique this. all I could do was kind of report what had happened and the consequences and I think they speak for themselves a lot. It's only towards the end of the book where I think my my attitude, my anger, I guess, kind of starts to come out because it comes into a political and contemporary sphere. This is the here and now, and we actually do have powers to do, what, to, to do things and change the way we relate to land. Um, but I also had to acknowledge that a lot of um, land owners, property owners, farmers, settlers, migrants, had had the best of intentions. You know, they might not have come out deciding to be monsters. They didn't necessarily come out to be murderers. Most people were just trying to do the right thing as for their families, whatever, and they were often doing what they had been told to do. And agricultural science has been through many iterations and and various different theories, and at one point the idea was... um, clear everything native, you know, plant European only. Another time, the everyone was suddenly devoted to what they call bare fallow, which is where you scrape the land completely bare and let the, the, the kind of the soil take care of itself and you get great yields out of it for a while. So this seemed like a good idea, but what happened is all the topsoil blew away. And people used to say, if it blows, it grows. And they'd watch the topsoil wafting away to the ocean. Because that's what they thought they were supposed to be doing. And um, I mean, it was only it, a few years later when that obviously was another catastrophe and the erosion was out of control that they realised that they had been sold a pup. But again and again, people have tried the, to do the best thing that they were thought that was in front of them.
0: And but, they, but they were taught, we I are. mean, a lot of these selections, they were given the land by government fiat fe- as long as they cleared it.
1: Yeah, yeah. It, it
0: wasn't even a choice on the part no, of these No, you had people.
1: to do it. And if there'd been an environmental officer like Glenn Turner 50 years earlier, he'd have been going up and saying, why haven't you cleared more trees? Why haven't you shot more koalas and and bilbies and wallabies? Why haven't you put up more fences? Um, That is what actually was required in order to keep your land. And so the idea that we have an environmental officer who comes around saying, what are you doing shooting koalas, is really recent. Not so recent that I think the Turnbull family wasn't aware of it but it is, it's really something that's only emerged since the 60s in, when conservation kind of law came into Australia and 90s even was, you know, when things really were, were firmed up. And so this, I, w- I was really captivated by this kind of ambivalence in the state authority. The state, on the one hand, granted land and said, please go and populate this continent. We need you to populate and work it. Otherwise, we have no right under terra nullius either to be here. And at the same time, we now have a state which says, no, we must protect our natural assets and our natural resources and so on. It tries to do both. And I think in, well, I don't know in Queensland, I'm sure you can relate to this, but in New South Wales... There is still this massive ambivalence, you know. the The, the minister of the environment is n- may have almost no relationship to the minister for resources, and um, the you know the the kind of political systems that we've got n- reflect this kind of schism where one lot is in favour of development and the other lot might be less so. And it's it's a tricky act, and I think farmers often get caught in the middle. To be honest, they they often do want to do the right thing, and I know that there are some fantastic farmers out there, even if they're still industrial farming and so on. It's just that I don't think as a nation we've really come to grips with this, what are we doing here? And is it indeed a thing to be celebrated that we have, yes, transformed the continent and become very prosperous? Is that a good thing that we're here or is it still a a tragedy that we should regret? I don't know.
0: I don't know. Did you go out to Moree and, and talk to people?
1: Look, I did. And I was living in Melbourne at the time. I now live in New South Wales, but at the time we were in Melbourne. My partner is Tim Flannery, who's a well-known conservationist and environmentalist, but not a universally popular man. <laughs> um, and I was, um, I said, it's Mike Morey's miles from Melbourne. So we had to drive to Sydney and then drive another, what, eight, nine hours out to, to Morey and um, he had to come with me. And if he came with me, our child had to come with us. So as a little family trotted off, and we were in a Prius, our hybrid Prius, (laughs) driving. I don't know if you've been to that part, but it's all Toyota Hilux from wall to wall. And we drove around trying to think we were inconspicuous as we went out to Cropper Creek, which has got like literally 14 kids in the school. It is tiny. Uh, and casually went along the roads looking at things. Um, And I felt so um, stricken that I was going to have to go to this community and ask questions. I mean, I'm not naturally an investigative journalist. This is all new to me. And I kept saying to my editor, I'm not a journalist. I don't know what to do. But I had to go, obviously. There was no not going. Um, And it was really excruciating. I just didn't know how to open the conversation. Because I kept thinking, if I say Ian Turnbull... What are they going to think? Uh, Are they going to, you know, be upset? This is a very painful subject. I went to Moree and I did talk to some people there and they went, oh, well, yes, Ian Turnbull. Um, Some of them went, who? So they they didn't really want to talk about it or they didn't know. Some other people said, oh, yeah, I remember him. But more, Cropper Creek, the little hamlet where the the scene occurred, was actually about 60 kilometres out of Moree, so it's a little way. Um, And when I went there... I talked to a few people and they just said, listen, we can't talk about it. It's so painful. This whole community is racked by what happened. And I know from what I had read in the media that some of the people in the community were just mortified. They were horrified at what had happened. This, um, this act of violence in their community was just devastating to them. Other people were not as devastated. And I, I believe there was talk in the pubs about he got what was coming to him, you know, Glenn Turner. It was he, he got what he was asking for, you know, it was his fault. And there was certainly a huge community support from some quarters for the Turnbull family who were perceived as being... ..and or presented themselves as being persecuted by a rogue kind of um, officer from a kind of rogue department that was going crazy with all of these, you know, kind of reg- legislations and regulations. And so they... I think they brought up that kind of ressentiment thing, so it was like not their fault. And they, they, a story went around that Glenn had been trespassing, which was not true. That he'd been kind of yes infringing on their on their perquisites. Um, and the community, I think, was really really torn by this. Um, the community in Moree was again horrified. But the, the mayor did make a comment, unfortunately, where she said basically, "I've been waiting for something like this to happen." which, you know, implied that murder was something that was going to be inevitable out of the native vegetation laws, which was certainly a hot topic, but um, the idea that m- the taking of a man's life was kind of an inevitable kind of outcome seemed to be really a distressing kind of way of reading it. Um, and she was probably not meaning it to sound quite like that, but um, certainly other politicians leapt in farther fast. So Barnaby Joyce um, was very quick out of the blocks and he said, yes, well, this is the kind of thing that happens when you push people too far. Farmers are being pushed too far and this was, kind of, this was always going to happen. And Alan Jones had also said, "All oh, these native vegetation laws, you know, some blood's going to be spilt over this kind of thing, which um, some people might see was a bit of incitement. <laughs> um, but certainly the actual killing of an environmental officer in Australia, an act which we, you know, we read about in happening in other countries where the thin green line, as they called, this, you know, involves the deaths of many, many environmental activists and rangers. But for that to happen here, I think, was really shocking. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And, I mean, it's been a few years now since it was 2014, the murder occurred. So we're talking eight years later, are, are you, have you been following up the response because the National Party, at Barnaby Joyce, they did take up this thing that, that there was too much regulation on land clearing; that we really needed to allow more of it to go ahead. That, that and, and a lot of this comes out of, and you go into this in, in some in, in some detail in the book. This idea that some regrowth should be allowed, re, that farmers think that regrowth should be allowed to be cleared, whereas some of this regrowth was already 60, 70, 80 years old, so it had actually had yeah. revegetated itself in, so, in some way. I mean, maybe I could let you talk to that. I've got another supplementary to that. But... Oh,
1: well, look, before anyone kind of thinks, oh, God, is this book really all about native vegetation legislation? Um, it kind of is. Um, <laughs> part of it is, <laughs> and I am the first to say that doesn't sound very dramatic, but um, it is really important, it turns out. Now, this is the New South Wales legislation, but I think Queensland has reflected similar experiences. Um, Yeah, it is complicated and my sympathies are really with farmers who've been working hard all day and then have to go home and work out this stuff, Um, just reading it as as a woman kind of sitting there on a Tuesday afternoon. I just found it so complicated. The the websites are complicated, the forms are complicated, the keeping track of how it goes. It's split between two authorities in New South Wales. So there's one government authority which kind of gives the permissions and so on and you have to go through a process with them. Um... And in those days, you would buy a piece of land, apply, describe it in your application, say, I want to clear it, and then this government agency would then evaluate it, probably come out and have a look, um, get ecologists to to see what they saw, and then evaluate your application and give you permission or not. Or you could then moderate what you're planning to do. Um, And then there's another department which would then um, step in. This is where Glenn Turner came in. If you had been deemed to have infringed those permissions, so if you thought that you'd gone overboard, they would come and see what damage you had done. It's, you know, it's already not a perfect system and it was, um, yeah, it's complicated but at the time of the, the Turnbull clearing it was actually also in flux and that was partly because um, everyone agreed that the laws were not really doing what they were supposed to do exactly. The conservations were more happy than the land developers because um, illegal clearing and endangered species uh, destruction, habitat destruction, was dropping quite rapidly. It was seemed to be working but it was still a bit laborious. Um, the Nationals had been lobbying for changes to free up a little bit of um, agency for the landowners and this was all going on at the time the Turnbulls were clearing and it appears that the, one of the Nationals had been making assurances to farmers that these laws were going to soon be changed, that they would be much more sympathetic to farmers' clearing. Um, And I can say that because it was attested in a trial where uh, a farmer who was being tried, investigated and tried for illegal land clearing said, no, this is what I was told. Um, So there was a kind of a background to this. And then um, the laws actually were changed uh, subsequently and given a little bit of um, a kick, I guess, by the Turnbull case. Ian Turnbull was heard to make some comments after he had killed Glenn Turner about, what I did was I, you know, I lit a bomb, and he, he seemed to be framing his murder of Turner as a, as a political act, like a wake-up call, he said. You know, this is what happens when farmers are pushed too far, when crazy rogue environmental officers come at them too hard, etc. And he was certainly taken up by certain quarters as a rallying call. You know, this is what kind of mess you've got, ourself, got us into. Um, So the laws were changed, and as they stand now, um, farmers basically self-assess for endangered species. They look at a block and they say, I feel like I'd like to clear this. And they say, do I feel like there's endangered species on it? No. And they clear it. Um, now, there are some checks and balances. There's a very complicated ce- um, scenario where you can do offsetting, which is um, being exposed as a very um, compromised kind of way of dealing with environmental assets. Um, often just people just don't do the offsetting. They, they say they will and they don't, or they yeah. buy the land, but they don't actually revegetate it. Um, or there's the other thing called set-asides, where you say, I'm going to clear, you know, 100 hectares, what I actually think now I'll do is I will clear 50 hectares and I will set aside 50 hectares not to be cleared, which um, seems to be ra- uh, yes exactly. You think well, uh, and yet 50 hectares does get cleared, but because he didn't clear as much as you said you were going to, this is somehow now considered to be an environmentally conservation uh, environmental conservation um, yes. activity. It's complicated. There's a regrowth that's old and there's a regrowth that's new. One of the ecologists said to me, "I'm going to wrap this up because I know I'm blabbering on." But um, he said it's not really so much about whether it's regrowth; whether it's all it's endangered species, yeah. and they need to be given a chance to reestablish. And he was working on rehabilitation, and he said that they would spend thirty, uh, get money from the government, thirty thousand dollars to rehabilitate a little roadside down the road. They're knocking down six hundred hectares, um, and the government is not able to stop this. Mm. So um, I know Queensland went through. Um, Uh, you know, a a very um, intense land-clearing period. Um, And I think we've all got lessons to learn from the recent past in this because what's happening in New South Wales and certainly happened in parts of Queensland was an absolute apocalypse of biodiversity habitat loss. Yeah. And because it happens kind of out there... And it's not the glamorous forests, it's not the rainforests, it's not kind of spectacular tourist sites, it's just roadsides, it's travelling stock routes, it's little scraps here, it's in the gullies. People don't notice it. It's not exciting, it's not glamorous, but it's incredibly important, biodiversity, and it is being absolutely smashed.
0: One of the questions you ask towards the end of the book is, what is it environmentalists want?
1: Yeah. <laughs> I'm not an environmentalist per se, so I, I don't know. But this took me. This question kind of came to me as I was writing the book, um, and as I was tracing the the history of environmentalism in Europe again. This is something that probably came there, notwithstanding First Nations. Attitudes to, to custody and care of country. But the European experience of conservation and environmentalism came from some strange places in Europe. So Samuel Taylor Coleridge, the poet, yeah. was um, someone who was very influential in this, um, this idea, of I think almost called the romantic Tory idea, that if you inherit land, you, you feel a sense of custody and you will actually take good care of it. So kind of inherited property is a, a conservation um, scenario. Um,
0: so that I mean that's interesting because it's, it, this is in contrast to the to the whole idea of work on the land to to own it, there is also, is also that if you own the land, you have a custodial responsibility towards it.
1: Yeah, and a lot of a lot of the nobility in England who were busy snatching up this land that had been in the commons were less interested in very advanced and progressive en- environmental and environmental agricultural procedures. So they weren't they weren't necessarily doing smash it all down and plant sorghum from horizon to horizon. They were doing some quite interesting things, and in that they did have a sense of custody and investment in in land. Um, but, um, yeah, I think environmentalists have come through the history of Australia with a kind of a crisis mentality from this, from this kind of emergence in the 40s and 50s, Miles Dunphy and so other people, and certainly in the Little Desert campaign in Victoria and other ones which kind of kick-started real environmental action, and then through the 80s, Bob Brown and the Tarkine and all those places. Um, so we've had a kind of a, re- a reactive, you know attitude to watching things being destroyed I think we've got to save them um, and what's kind of developed out of this is a is a almost a kind of axiom that nature is best left without people in it like if you pick people are the problem with this kind of destructive behaviour and if you take the people out, then that kind of solves the problem. So we've got the idea of reserves, and reserves were originally mostly just leftover land that nothing else was going to be used in it. Um, But then you think, oh, well, let's have some conservation areas. So the Royal National Park South of Sydney is the second national park in the world that was set aside as yeah. a, a kind of thing, but not originally um, as a, an untouched wilderness, but actually quite habitated place. Um, Of course, this is an idea that comes out of a depopulated landscape, and where do you get a depopulated landscape? In um, one that's just been cleared of all its First Nations peoples. So, a a kind of romantic fantasy is part of some environmental thinking. And I don't mean this in a critical way. I'm sympathetic to it in lots of ways, but it's it's an odd one, because it has this idea that an intact natural wilderness is one that has no humans in it. But that hasn't been the case in this continent for many, 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 many thousands of years. And the continent that was um, experienced by the European settlers was one that was quite humanly shaped. Um, It depends on the presence of those humans, perhaps. And simply walking off country, Walking off land is not always the answer, especially if that land has been compromised by clearing. Because what happens is you then get a feral nature, which is full of weeds and, and other things. Now maybe that's better than nothing. Maybe that's better than just wall-to-wall barley. Maybe the barley is a is just the newest form of of you know e- evolution here. I just as the more I started thinking about this, the more complicated and tangled it got. And I can't say I have any settled position on this, but um, I think the The kind of um, um, Eden fantasy of about Australia that it would be, all be wonderful if we just weren't here is is a kind of a, an unrealistic one because it it, it obviates and occludes um, the indigenous. Experience of this country, and also the, just the irreducible fact that we are here. So we can't walk away from everything. What are we going to do with the land that is under our feet and right in front of us? Whether it's our, our native gardens in our, you know, in our urban centres, whether it's the tree planting in our city streets, whether it's you know big back blocks in in the countryside, you know, wheat country, cattle country, or beautiful kind of rainforest, endangered rainforest. It's all our problem to deal with now. We have to find some way of reacting and re- relating to this landscape. Um, and having an idea that you either have to smash it, and grab it, and tame it, or wander off, I don't think either of those situations is going to deal with the, you know what we have in front of us.
0: Hmm. Look, That's probably a very good way for you and I to conclude the conversation. Because I'd really like to give give some time of yes, the stop audience. I, so I, could,
1: I could go on, <laughs> I can go
0: no, on forever. No, I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of questions here. Um, I mean, it's interesting because we we're, we're having this conversation in Melania, which is one of those unique parts or not unique but certainly rare parts of Australia where there is a, been an enormous amount of conservation work going on and in fact I think you'd find that you know the land if you look at photographs of Melania in the 40s and 50s it's like a billiard table there's just yeah. you know there are just two or three pockets of remnant which we can still point you to uh, and then there's nothing else and now we have a, a know 60 or 70 percent of the OBOB and distributaries fenced off from cattle we have we have some really good outcomes going on here Mm, but it's quite it's very confronting for us as residents of this place to go you know another hundred kilometres to the west of here and then see the landscape Mm. continually being cleared being being laser leveled to particular and having that biodiversity removed so it's just it's it's fascinating to be having this conversation with you in a place like this and, and to talk about this because these yeah. are questions that are really in utmost in a lot of our minds here. Well, like so I said, like I look, it's one let, of those things let, that's let me, everywhere. Let me see if we've got... I've got this uh, a lady there with a hand up straight away here. It's Diane, Hello. isn't it? Just there. There you go. Thank you.
2: Hello. Very. Thank you very much. This is obviously a profound question. And I would just like to bring your attention to the fact, and talking about Mullaney and whether we're going ahead very well and so forth, of how much of South East Queensland is actually lived on and owned in small blocks in urban areas. And a group has just formed on the Sunshine Coast, and Eric and I are part of it. It's organised by Ken Cross and John Burbeck, and it's called Biodiversity for Backyards. And it's looking at the fact that huge areas of southeast Queensland are lived on by humans, and we could do a lot more to rehabilitate it. That we need to be putting in native plants, and say 50%, if possible, of our area. We can have our fruit trees and our vegetable gardens, but think about putting something in that improves the biodiversity. So I bring your attention to biodiversityforbackyards.org so that we can all make a positive contribution. We don't have to have a huge broad-acre farm. We can do something to improve biodiversity where we are. We've stripped 85% of the rainforest off. Yeah. And so this is something that we can do as
1: individuals on small blocks. Thank you, Dan. Yeah, very much. I must say, as a as a Melburnian, which Melbourne is quite a European city in some ways, I found it really changed my perspective on the the suburbs around me. You know, what I I, I do really like European plants, and I do like the little cottage gardens and things. But I, I, I find it hard to reconcile my feelings because I think, yes, I like that. It doesn't have to be all or nothing. But, yes, having a, having a, a couch grass lawn and nothing but, you know, kind of um, gladioli or something is a bit weird when there had been something different. And no. that, yes, finding some kind of place where you can accommodate one thing and the other and there's enough to kind of keep things going is, is great. And when, we were writing, when I was writing this book, we were trying to replant some vegetation in our rented house back garden in Melbourne and it was so wrecked, that soil. It was so kind of toxified and just undone that we couldn't get anything native to grow. It only liked bamboo and, (laughs) you know, scurvy weed and all this other stuff. So it was very, yes, apropos.
3: Uh, Yeah, a question about the the kind of background to attitude to land in Australia. Um, We were settled basically by the English. My grandfather was an Englishman He was able to get a title to 3,000 acres of land, uncleared land, you know, in in 1905, and he had three sons. And that was the the thinking behind it. So there was this English idea that, you know, we're here, we can really open up the land. You know, that was the the thinking. And of course, England's population was increasing and, and there was a demand for imported food, which grew and grew. And, um, and so people who started farming back then had a pretty high status. And I have to say my father and my two uncles were excused from uh, conscription in the First World War because they were farmers and they were, produ- they were producing food. Yeah. And, and that was a very important, uh, you know, kind of cultural thing in the day. And I think that kind of thing about we're important. If we're farmers, we're important. You know, we're doing good things for not only ourselves, but we're, we're producing stuff.
1: Yeah. Well, look, I, I don't want anyone to think that I'm anti-farming because, yeah, farmers have done noble work. I mean, it, it's a tradition that goes <laughs> back 10,000 years in Western, you know, in, in Europe and, and the Middle East. We need food, you know. It's just how you do it. And like I said, farmers were very much valorised and especially with the turn from grazing to, to farming and agriculture. You know, in 19... I think it was 1930. 30? 30, 1929, 30? 30, it was Grow More Wheat Year. And I, I, I found a lot of fantastic material in a book by a man called Cameron Muir, who's a great environmental historian. And he wrote this great chapter about the kind of the, the place of wheat in our national mythos. And it was partly brought by this kind of biblical idea, you know, the kind of the fields of gold and wheat and this kind of uh, harking back to our ancestry and kind of fundamentals and elemental goodness of the soil and so on. And then there was this weird thing where it was also linked to kind of whiteness and and kind of the nobility of European race, as opposed to those um, kind of distrustful, strange brown people who ate rice to the north. And there was this weird, weird, horrible discourse in the early part of the 20th century about how wheat was kind of the the bread and the, the fuel of the white race, and this was what made us so clever and wonderful and noble and strong. And that kind of Baltic thing as well, you know, the kind of the, the steppes and the plains and the kind of Ukrainian, you know, tall, muscular people. And this all kind of came in this, this weird racist discourse in Australia, which um, I, I don't think is the farmer's fault at all, but it, I think some of that almost is still with us. We love those cereal packet images of what wheat fields, you know, with the setting sun and people trailing mm-hmm. their fingers through, like, you know, um, <laughs> in gladiator and... It's, it's very elemental in our culture, and people who produce that and relate to that and go out there in the land, you know, we love that because it takes us, it gives us a romance about our roots, I think. Yeah. And feeding your family, yes.
3: Um, thanks so much for your comments. Um, in reading the book, I must say I felt a little down <laughs> about the, that legislation slipping back under that political influence mm. to removing those safeguards on the land. Uh, I'm just wondering, in, in the current context of a new government, new federal government, whether you see any hope in Tanya Plivisek's, um sort of strong pronouncements on yeah. what should be done to for environmental protection or is it just a state matter?
1: Well, obviously in, in, in Queensland and in New South Wales, there's state legislation and there's federal legislation and um, ideally the two, you know, support each other. In reality, they're often completely far apart. So, in the, in the case of the Turnbull Clearing, I kept thinking, what about the feds? Like, where were they? There was a federal investigation. But basically what happened is the federal investigation assumed that the state investigation had it in hand. And so they really kind of didn't do much, is my understanding. Um, And the the state, you know, uh, people like Glenn Turner, they were in there. They did their thing. They they got through the kind of the agonising process of mounting a prosecution. But the state laws are... Yeah, they've, they've changed since then and the department is not very well funded. It's not supported in the ways that it needs to be. They're extremely um, chary of prosecuting, um, partly because it costs taxpayer money, so if they don't get a result, there's a lot of questions to be answered. Um, also, they're intimidated, I think, by the the... Well, the, the bullying, I think, of landowners who employ QCs, um, the Turnbulls employed a QC for every single one of their cases, and that cost them a fortune, but that's in their budget. They would just put that in the budget because they stood to make millions of dollars from their clearing. Um, it's, yeah, it's really d- difficult for the state department to, 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 to meet the requirements of its obligations, not through their own fault. So you'd really hope that the federal system would step in. Um, and this you know the environmental protection and biodiversity. Environmental, uh, what is it? The EB, environmental protection. Yes. (laughs) Sorry, it's been a couple of years since I waded through this terminology. But that has been um, reported on by Graham Samuels and he pointed out the many shortcomings in its execution. It's not a bad act, but it was very poorly executed. And Plibasek did come out in her very first kind of national press thing and say, this is what it says. the State of the Union report says this, and the the review about the Act is going to need some real work on it um, so I'm hoping that she will be able to come through with that because the the Samuel report was very clear about the limits and the problems and um, if they can not only um, kind of condense the legislation so that it's workable but also put money into supporting it, then that could be a you know a safeguard for when the state laws are not sufficient or not properly executed but it is it's really mucky and murky and um, i think considering where we're coming from at this point there's a long way to go yeah fingers crossed
0: napier in the front is a
4: Thank you. Thank you for writing the book. Um, I come from a farming family okay. of um, a few generations. And um, I'm having... With my father um, being quite at the forefront of com- conservation in, in, in our lands... ...and having many field offices coming to our property...
1: Oh, yes. Um,
4: ah. I, I just felt particularly really hurt and, and and pained by what had happened to Glenn. Um, but my question is... Um, My father was a leader in his community on conservation. Mm. He was a very quiet man and he he led by example. Um, And I I imagine in the Maury area that there would also have been some leaders and conservation advocates very strongly. Um, So I wondered, you know, in that that community how that worked with, you know, the Turnbulls and those people and what influence... Was there much influence from those advocates... Well, it's, it's funny
1: because I, I originally started reading about the Turnbulls and the media reports had them as this kind of squatocracy family, being there for eons, generation upon generation. And then when I looked into it, that was not actually true. They were, they were fairly recent. I mean, they'd been on the land but not in any big way. So they didn't have that kind of, you know, inherited thing. Um, and then I thought, well, I'm really hoping Ian Turnbull doesn't turn out to be this kind of cliché. He seems like a, well, I hope... This is—he <laughs> seemed like a bit of a bastard. Every report I had of him said, described him as a very aggressive man, kind of quite a fearsome presence in the, you know, in that landscape. Um, and I thought, I hope he's not that, you know, just that one thing. I, I want a complicated protagonist. Um, I didn't get that far, but what I did discover, to my surprise, that he was actually a conservation farmer. So, he had actually been one of the kind of poster kids in that area for conservation techniques in farming, so minimum till, etc., things which would like really try and keep the soil intact, little, not too much kind of damage, not too much kind of um, mayhem, not just going in there with you know the DDT and just spraying everything and, and, and rolling over it. Um, so, I this brought home to me that there was actually a bit of a difference between conservation and um, clearing. So I think there's actually quite a lot of farmers, probably like your your family, um, who do quite sophisticated and sympathetic acts on land. You know, they they might do a little bit of no-till or zero, you know, uh, minimum till farming. They leave corridors for the wildlife. They whatever, you know, whatever it is that you do, you know, you compost. And um, definitely, there's more and more of that happening with the regenerative farming kind of movement. But when push comes to shove, you can you can put as much compost as you like. But if you are smashing down, um, you know, 6,000 hectares of native vegetation, that's a very different act. And I think the turnpills were probably typical in some ways in that they the property prices and the returns were getting so huge um, that when it came to it, they just could not resist going for broke. You know, they said we could be lovely about this, but really look at it. And to Turnbull was actually at pains to be establishing his, establishing his family further on land. So he um, helped underwrite a loan for his grandson to buy the property, one property, and for his son to buy the other one. And they were they were in it to to get in and make money, I think, um, and of course, as soon as they could get crops on, because they took a mortgage to buy these properties, as soon as they could get crops on, they could start making returns and they, you know, off they went, and he said that that was, that was really at the heart of his crime with Glenn Turner, was that he was in a rush to get it done. He was dying. Like, he felt he was an old man. He was dying. There was no time to be lost. It was just going to have to be like smash it down and plant that wheat or sorghum or barley or whatever it was. So I don't think the two things are necessarily that that Mm -hmm. antithetical. they're 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 not impossible to reconcile, but you can be a really sympathetic farmer and still be clearing habitat, which might otherwise be left. And part of this, I think, is because... Um, A lot of farmers aren't really, they might be taught about land care, especially for agricultural care, so you want to nourish the soil, keep the soil structure intact, fertilising through natural kind of means, but they don't see the value of the scrub. You know, we call it scrub even. It's not cherished, it's not prized, people aren't educated about it. One ecologist said that he, he feels that scientists have done a really bad job of explaining why that stuff is important. People just see it as an impediment and if you're doing tramline kind of dozing and harvesting where you just program a dozer to go up and down in straight lines, say a tree, a paddock tree is an impediment and there are actuaries who've done all the calculations about just how much it costs you to have to go round a tree. You know, If you have to go around 500 trees, well, that's going to cost you whatever money. And so they go, well, let's get rid of the tree. And they don't necessarily understand that tree is a crucial part of habitat and a part of a corridor for animals. So um, a lot of farmers probably don't realise the damage that they're doing with clearing. And they often also think, I'm just doing a little bit. You know, the the turnbills were spectacular, and this is probably why they got caught. But a lot of farmers will just go, I'm just tidying up. I'm just getting a bit of that stuff out of the way. I don't like that. It's in the way of my, my business. Um, so I think that, yeah, you can you could maybe um, do a better job of explaining to farmers why all of it matters. I think.
0: Yeah. And, and look, that's probably where we have to end for the night. But I just want to say thank you for writing this book because it's a, it's a difficult book. Um, I mean, it must have been a difficult book to write. It's it's a difficult story, but it's a really important one. And and thank you, thank you for coming to Balani to talk to us about it.
1: My pleasure. Please put your
0: hands together
3: for Kate. Thank
1: you, Stephen.